Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. Just turn with me uh, to Matthew 5, verse 1. I'm going to begin here. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. This is towards the beginning of his ministry. His disciples, his apprentices, they came to him. He began to teach them. So he's focused in on his apprentices and the followers of Jesus right there in front of him. And he's also looking up to all of these people who've come around and are beginning to listen in. Now, these large crowds, the people that he's speaking to, we gather both from context and the words that are being used here um, are, are the, the, the people who are, um, maybe the best translation would be like exceedingly plain it's like this absolute ragtag mess of humanity in this very rural area that Jesus did his healing and preaching. He goes up on the mountainside and he says this, just to kick off his kingdom manifesto. If you ever wonder, like, you're compelled by Jesus. And you're like, what is it about Jesus? Why is it he's had the influence he's had? He's like the opening lines to his manifesto for what he's about to do. And he says this, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. This word blessed, it's this divine, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm on your side. Fortunate are you because God is with you. And then this term, the poor in spirit, we've talked about this before. This is not um, a positive term. Poor in spirit are the morally bankrupt, the losers, the lame. It is not good. It's not a condition we're trying to attain. This has sometimes gotten read like blessed are those who think really badly about themselves. It's not blessed are those even who know how much they need God, though that is very true. And there is a gift that comes to those that know that need. There's nothing praiseworthy or honorable or positive, though, on the face of things about this word that's used here. No, what's happening, similar to the gospel, is Jesus is making an announcement. He's announcing something. I I want you to hold on to that idea all the way through the rest of this talk, because it's going to be important. good friend came to me or we just kind of fell into a conversation and uh, he made this simple observation he says I'm paraphrasing here but he said it's so interesting how often when we share things from the pulpit or in a Bible study or home church or over coffee like God loves you just accept that God loves you. You can just accept and receive that gift of grace, that unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. Just rest in that. And then we proceed usually directly following that to then give some like strong instructions about then what you got to do and how you've got to surrender, what you've got to achieve and strive for longer and harder, which makes sense. 
right? The, the gospel calls us to respond. And often we are undoing all the bad wiring and influence and things that have like come on us over our lives and need to believe in new scripts. So there's always a response and always an opportunity to surrender and resurrender and rededicate. He was just having a moment of like, man, sometimes I would love if someone just got up and was like, God loves you. Deal with it, rest in it, and then just walked away. Just walked away. That's it. So I'm not going to make it quite that simple, but close. This is what Jesus is doing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He's announcing something. It's not here's how to get God's blessing. It's not here's what you need to do. He begins his epic manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount. Anybody who's a student of history and literature knows that this little spiel and this collection of sermons and talks here has shaped more of Western civilization than anything else. Read through it sometime. He's, he's pretty smart. He's worth following. He's a Jesus guy. And he begins it with a God who is with the poor in spirit. The idea that God was somehow with these people in Jesus and with us now. This is what's first talked about right in the Christmas story, just a chapter or two before. Jesus is given a name, Emmanuel, which literally means what? God with us, right? This is central, basic to the story. It's that God's not distant. God's not detached. He's not indifferent to our pain. He's not uninterested in our condition. He's not uninvolved in our real struggles, but instead he is present among us. So when we talk about Jesus being divine and human, what we're saying is that Jesus is unique and singular in this historic way because he is showing us what God is like, even in just being. God with us. He's with us. And so what does it mean that he's with us? I had a friend stop by um, recently just to bring us some food. It's like super kind. Blessed us with this amazing meal. I love this guy. Um, some of you know this guy. I won't say his name, but he makes me appear calm. And makes me appear very even and like unemotional and like that. That's how amped up this guy is. Um, he's just so passionate and fired up and loud and in your face the best way all the time. And like, so we hang around, hung around and what he was like, no, I'm just going to stop, just stop by and leave you something. I'm just going to stop by and leave you something. And of course, like, we're like, it's not going to happen. And we just kept talking and talking and talking and hanging out. And he's like, we're on the street and he's like, come here, come here, come here. And he just wants to like bless the family. I'm like, all right. Our neighbors are like, let's do this. Okay. He's like laying hands on the children in the middle of our street. You ever had someone show up unexpectedly to your house? Maybe it's around dinner time, just ready to sit down and eat. Hear the doorbell, you open it up, it's a friend of yours, and they're like, hey. And you're like, hey. And they're like, I'm here. I'm like, great. <laughs> Hi. And you're like frantically, if you're like me, you're frantically searching through your brain, trying to remember, like, if you invited your friend over and just forgot. And finally you ask, like, in the most gentle way possible, like, what? So, so what's up? Why are you here? And they just respond, what do you mean? <laughs> I'm just here. You're just here. Well, we're just sitting down for dinner. Cool, cool. Oh, so you, you came to eat. You need to eat some food. No, no, man, just came to be here. It'd be super strange, right, and awkward. People don't do that. Our friend John didn't really just come over, right, just to be with us. God had put something on his heart, and he came to bless us. 
came and wanted to just shower us with some love and food. I say all this just to ask the really simple, basic question. Why is Jesus with us? I think some of us can get behind the idea that God is in some way present with us because we like to reduce our spirituality, especially in the West, down to like a force, sort of an indifferent kind of vibe, divine sense of being that's really, really about our consciousness as externalized. But since it's not the way the scriptures talk or Jesus talks about who he is, why? Why is he with us? The Bible tells us emphatically something about why he's with us, that he's with us because he is for us. For us. To rescue, to provide, to forgive, to empower. Father is for us. One place we see this literally is in Romans 8, 31 to 32. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these, reflecting on the majesty and beauty of who God is and what he's done? If God's for us, He's just built the whole case. Go back and read chapter 7 and 8 of Romans. If God's for us, then whoever can be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Now, before we get into this idea, let me just first say that when I talk about God being for us, I'm not talking about guarantees not talking about like some surefire way to stay healthy, have lots of friends, drive a nice car, keep up with whoever, like all that stuff. Hopefully I don't need to say what I'm going to say. When I talk about flourishing and thriving, I'm talking about something much more profound and enduring and meaningful and satisfying. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the ones who don't have it all together. And at the heart of Jesus' teaching about God is an unexpected idea that cuts against all of the dominant ways that we've come to believe about how God works. And maybe it's you today. Jesus announces God's blessing on those who are lacking, who don't have it all together, who are acutely aware that they don't measure up. This is one of the many reasons why it is, and I'm just quoting Jesus, is hard for rich, competent people to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard. Not impossible. It's not a punishment. It's just harder. It's harder. It's harder because you've got all these other things and pressures and places that insulate you from it. I love to talk about this because over the years as a pastor, I've interacted with so many people who are operating under the conviction that if they could just get better, more disciplined or spiritual or kind or courageous or whatever else, then they would be in or accepted or embraced or validated or affirmed from God. They get it exactly opposite. The things that motivate you to worship the Lord, to lean into power, to like crucify the flesh, to get rid of the brokenness and stuff, to be someone who's wildly generous, who cares for the poor, who's overflowing with kindness. No, no, to move in that direction doesn't come from bludgeoning yourself out of shame and guilt. It comes from recognizing first and foremost that I am a loved child of God and in need of him and his saving. Amen? Loved, adopted, blessed. These are Scriptural, biblical words. Jesus says God is for you. God doesn't operate on this point system. God's grace is not fair, right? In the best way possible. Doesn't wait for us to get it together. I've been practicing this with my children more often. Is when there's like 
all these things that are going on, I found myself, anyone else like this, I could inadvertently, and I'm somebody who likes to like bless and I'm very like words of affirmation person and still, and like, like I'm predisposed to the positive and still find myself doing this. They've done all these wonderful, beautiful things. Instead of pouring all the gas on all the good and beauty of who they are and how love they are and how they crushed it at this thing, I'm just like my whole brain just wire, like zeroes in and lasers in on that one negative bad thing that they did. And that becomes the thing I often will like focus on. Now, this isn't about God not paying attention to the brokenness and ache and pain and sin in our life. This is not that talk, lest you be mistaken. But we need to begin where God begins. We could say it like this. We talk a lot about original sin in Genesis 3, but the Bible begins in Genesis 1 with original blessing. Made in the image of God. Dearly loved. Dearly loved. Dearly loved. For God so loved you that he came. For God so loved you. This is a love that you can walk away from because that's what love's like. You cannot take hold of it. You cannot accept it, not lean into it, not let it shape every part of you. But when you do, and when you do over and over and over again, something happens. Look, I've been a follower of Jesus who has heard messages like this all my life. And for whatever reason, it just never gets old. In fact, it's in seasons that I subconsciously would say, I don't like need God to be for me. Like I need him to be more brutal with me (laughs) that I usually need to be reminded of it the most because it will lift you up and change you and actually move you to the meaningful release and rest and conviction that's actually needed. Trusting that God is for you calls you to a major change in your thinking. It's a shift in your understanding It's a massive leap in how you actually see yourself. Otherwise, you're stuck in the same old points like program. See why Jesus like often begins his teachings with saying repent. This is why repent, repent. You know what repent means, right? It means to change your thinking, to see things in a new way. Comes from the Hebrew word teshuva, which means to turn around, to have your mind renewed. Which, shout out to all my friends in recovery, reminds me of Alcoholics Anonymous. My friend tells a story about being in an AA meeting, and he's listening to people tell their stories. And he says the gears in his mind turned as fast as they could, trying to figure out what it was about this meeting that was so different from any other gathering he'd been in. I know I've said this before. Like, he comes to the conclusion that what was special about this space, this AA space, this recovery space, was the complete and lack, like the complete lack of BS. No BS. No like, no jockeying for position. No spinning things. The first of the 12 recovery steps is all about admitting you're powerless. Admitting demands honesty. Admitting requires an assessment of your condition, an honest one. Admitting is what happens when you have no energy left to pretend when you're done playing games and you no longer care what other people think, when you come to the end of yourself and you're ready to embrace the truth that you need help, that you made a mess of things. In an AA meeting, you can really see just how much time and energy and effort we expend to make sure everybody knows how strong and smart and quick and competent and capable and together we all are. You can see just how the rest of the world is so different. In fact, we look down often on people in recovery, and yet God says those are the ones, man, that got the power. 
those are the ones who see way clearer than the rest of y'all. It's hard to see just how much posturing consumes us until you're in a room where it's not there, until you're in a room where people are repenting. Repent. I love you. I love you. Repent. Right? Well, we've we've run repent through the fundamentalist, angry, placard view. Even those of us who never grew up around it, we just like repent. It's like so strong. That's for Lent, Andrew. Take it easy. Jesus says it all the time. The Jesus that you love, who's the super inclusive, loves everyone vision in your head, is the one who says more often than not, repent, come back, turn around, get honest. You're broken. It's a hard world out there. This is the reality of when people don't choose love. There are aches in your blood and bones. Turn to me. Turn back to me. Say yes to my love. It's all here for you. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Turn around and see and receive the blessing. In an AA meeting, no one has energy left for the sort of posturing that we have and the ways that we sort of hide ourselves from God. You come face to face with who you truly are. And when you come to the end of yourself, you're in that exact moment in the exact kind of place that you can fully encounter God and see his posture towards you. Uh, a friend tells a story. I wrote this down. I have a friend. He's really good at reminding me just how religious he is not. Anyone have a friend like that? Anyway? Like, like, he's like, yeah, you know anybody who's like, they love to tell you like how not religious they are. They're not like those Christians. They're not like those, those folks. Telling... Uh, just some things in his life that were falling apart and how stressed and anxious and depressed and fearful he's been about some stuff happening. And he surprised me. We were just talking about prayer. He's like, yeah, man, I, I like prayed the other day. You ever know that? Like, you ever notice that? Like even the fact that like hopes and prayers come up every time there's some shooting or something. The word prayer gets tossed around by people who like want nothing to do with religion or faith or any idea that you're crying out to God. Why do people who don't pray pray when their back's against the wall. One writer talks about the reality of this is because to experience the beauty and life that comes from trusting God, trusting the God who is for us, we have to first talk about our deep down intuitive awareness that we need help. It's this idea that everyone knows in the base and bones of their being that they need saving. And this idea does not line up with the dominant cultural voices in our world, right? the idea that we need saving. We insist that we're the answer to our problems. We insist that there's no one else out there, that no one's coming for us, and that if we don't fix things ourselves, there are no other options. And this sounds so empowering and reasonable, and it sounds so free from religious superstition, but what we actually run into in our day-to-day lives, if we're honest, is the endless struggles that we need help We need help if we're going to survive, much less thrive, because on our own, we know that we are powerless. Just to bring it home for a minute, not that you need a list, but lying and anger and addiction, inability to forgive, overwhelming helplessness in the face of tragedy, constant anxiety that won't go away, haunting sense that you're not good enough no matter how hard you work and what you achieve. 
I think when we're talking about the God that's for us, we're talking about the very real, real sense. The very real sense we have that we do not on our own have everything we need. We are not on our own everything we could be. And it's there in that place, naming it and owning it and facing it and going around the room. If you would just turn to your neighbor and admit your deepest, darkest sin really quick. Somebody in the room is like, yes, ready. Um, Admitting the powerlessness, it's in those moments that we discover the God who is for us. This isn't about doing something to get God to do something. It's about your posture. Jesus shows us in flesh and blood. He touches lepers that no one else would touch. He hears the cry of blind people who had been told to shut up. He dines with tax collectors whom everybody hated. Like he, he, he talks with thirsty, very promiscuous Samaritan women he wasn't supposed to talk with. Cultural shame. He would have been like blown up on Twitter so many times and called out by the heretic police. Over and over again, we see him going to the edges and to the margins and to those that are in trouble and despised and those that no one else would touch and that are ignored and the weak and the blind and the lame and the lost. And he moves towards them. What does this reality do to your psyche? I always love talking about this. Because though I'm talking about the very real God of the universe, who I've experienced, and you're probably sitting next to someone who's experienced God, who knows what it is to be loved and forgiven by God, the psychology of all of this is just mind-blowing. So if you would, as we close, I want to invite the band up. I want to do a hard left turn. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Numbers. (laughs) Didn't see that coming. Quick context. These are the people that are chosen by God to be a blessing to the world, this Hebrew tribe. This is where the rescue operation begins. The renewing of all things starts. And they've been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They have been saved by grace through faith. We sometimes think this is like a New Testament idea. Like, no. The Hebrew people were saved by grace, rescued from Egypt. And then they are brought up on a mount and given the Ten Commandments. Here's how we're going to live together. Echoes the very beginning of the Gospels. Hence why the writers frame the beginning of his kingdom manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount. It brings them up onto the mount and says, here's how we're going to live together. Saved by grace through faith. Blessed are the poor in spirit and with you. And then he brings them into what life can be like. They are ready to move into the unknown, like each one of us, every minute of the day. (laughs) And then we see this in verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. This is how you are to um, help them see my posture, God's posture towards you. In a time of deep uncertainty, unknowing of what's to come, he says, the Lord bless you, keep you. 
The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. The Lord bless you. This word Barak here in the blessing has the idea of bringing a gift to another while kneeling. Which is great, right? Think of a father kneeling down to his children and giving them a gift. The extended meaning of the word um, is to uh, give something of value to another. It's like may God's full expectation for you be fulfilled in your life. It's to speak the intention of God. And we know that God's intention for people are good. John Orberg says, blessing is the projection of good into the life of another. God is showing us his posture. And then it says, and keep you. The next line, and keep you. The Hebrews, this nomadic people raising livestock, it would not be strange for a shepherd to be out with his flock away from the camp overnight. So to protect the flock, the shepherd would build a fence of thorn bushes. The shepherd would guard over the flock and this fence would be a hedge of protection around them. The Hebrew word for thorn is literally derived from this word here, keep. It literally means, literally means to guard or protect or watch over. We find the same word, Bible nerds in the room, three times in Psalm 121. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life, same word, and the Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. We find it in Genesis in the context of tending to a, and protecting a garden, flourishing and guarding and watching over. This is what God is like. This is in part what it means that God is for us. He's for me. He's watching over me. He's turned his attention toward me. Shall we keep going? Make, yes, Andrew, keep going. Thanks. Make his face shine upon you. Make his face shine upon you. The word here is panim. Can also mean countenance or presence. Think of how a person's face lights up when they see a loved one. <laughs> I'm gonna tear up because it's the I'm already like mourning the day that this doesn't happen anymore. But like three out of the five days when I come home from work, kids are there before me and I I come up the stairs and I can hear Just like that. Nailed it. <laughs> Dad. Dad's home. Dad's home. It's like this, this idea of a person's face lighting up when they see a loved one. It could literally be translated as may God smile at you. God's affection and pleasure with you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's blessings upon you. loves you, watch over you, keep you, desires the best for you. The next phrase, and be gracious to you. 
The Hebrew word here is hanun. It's the same word basically for grace that denotes God's desire to rescue and forgive sin and show favor to the undeserving. Be gracious with you. Turn his face toward you. This ancient expression describes God giving his full and complete attention to us, listening deeply to us. Just the other night, we were, Corey and I, my wife, stumbled into this great conversation, and it was getting really, really meaningful. And then when I have this moment, like something blinked on my phone. I was truly, really engaged, and I went and looked at it really quick, and it like pulled my attention off. I was still listening. But we all know, right? Immediately like, yeah, yeah, honey. Yeah, that is really good. And Corey stops me and just goes, just goes, hey, hey, hey. Like there's three times, hey, hey, come back to me. That was a really good conversation we were having. <laughs> to turn his face towards you. It's this idea of listening deeply, a readiness to help. Guys, I don't know who needs to hear this today, but you have God's attention. What would this do for your heart if you could trust just a little bit more of that reality in the season? I don't know if that's you, but like, he's not far from any one of us. He's not the dad or he's not the teenager. He's not the like friend who like you cannot get a hold of because they're just like this all the time. He's attentive. You look up and you're like, whoa, too much eye contact. And lastly, and give you peace. The Hebrew word shalom, way broader than our simple word for peace. We've spoken on this many times. Peace in our world tends to just mean lack of conflict, but shalom is wholeness. It's peace with God and others and creation and even a sense of peace with yourself. The phrase describes God supplying our physical, material, and emotional needs. And God speaks all this to Moses. Tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the people of Israel. This is how you are to know God's posture towards them. And Jesus says, God is for you. Bless them, he says, by telling them my intentions for them. I will help them flourish. I'll smile upon them. I will save them, forgive them, and be merciful with them. They have my attention, and I will provide all that they need. That's pretty good, right? Yeah. Holy Spirit, I pray you give us a revelation. Man, it's such like a Jesus-y word, but it's the only word I have. <laughs> like a fresh, like, understanding. Just a touch and a taste your posture towards us, for everybody who struggles with this. Just resting. You are addicted to something. Statistically in this room, there are certain addictions that for sure sit here. There is sin that sits in this room. There are aches and pains. There's bitterness. There's fear. There's uncertainty. There's this like high level anxiety. You can't turn it off and rest and you got to keep going. Lord, there are all sorts of things and we can just, Lord, let it all be. 
Yes, we want to work on it. Yes, there will be sermon series and moments of prayer and moments of conviction where God wants to break off the chains of injustice from your heart. Yes to all of it. But right now, I just want to invite us on the eve of a new like ministry season, on a slow, beautiful day in the middle of August to simply rest in the truth of God's posture and heart toward you. Lord, bless you. Lord, keep you. Lord, we'll watch over you and be gracious to you. He'll turn his face toward you and give you peace. Few people are motivated to be all they can be from a place of shame or guilt. And this is why remembering and recalling that God is for you needs to come first. Before correction, before Monday motivation, before confession, before disciplines, before a rule of life, before practices. Remembering what God has done, the good news that you are saved and rescued by grace alone. This is who he is in our heart for us. And because God is for us, because God is for us, who can be against us? I want to invite us as we begin to close our time to sit with this, to allow it to wash over you. Maybe just to raise your hands, come to your knees or come to the front or whatever it is and just be open. To breathe deep. To hear Paul say, like, just live such good, quiet, godly, and holy lives. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit.